country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy from the Australia Indonesia Centre. As the pandemic enters its sixth month and Indonesia's case numbers continue to rise, decisions by central and local government to reopen for the sake of the economy will prove a test for those millions of Indonesians living in its densely populated cities. How are the cities changing in the midst of the pandemic and what do social distancing and the new normal look like? To answer these questions and many more, my guest today is Dr. Amanda Akmadi, Senior Lecturer in Architectural Design, Asian Architecture and Urbanism at the University of Melbourne. Hi, Mandy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Gemma. So, Amanda, can you start by telling us, maybe speaking in general terms, about what the lockdown in Indonesia has looked like? When we picture Indonesia, we picture big, densely populated, dynamic cities. What impact have the restrictions on public gatherings and spaces in particular looked like did it include actually a total shutdown of the public sphere? Uh, well, they never actually impose a lockdown. So what they have imposed is what they call the wide-scale social restriction. So the actual term lockdown has never been used. And what happened is we see a different response to that a recommendation of social distancing in the context of major urban center, let's say Jalan Sudirman in Jakarta or major streets in Bandung, to what you can see in the residential suburb. So the social restriction clearly can be observed in this major urban space in the city center, but to some extent you, you hardly see the difference in the residential suburbs, primarily because being on the street are so crucial for the, not just the social life, but uh, the functioning, the economic functioning of cities in Indonesia. Absolutely. So can you say a bit more about what you mean by being on the street? What is the street like? On a, in a normal Indonesia and you're saying yes. that not change much in most places. Yes. Uh, well, the street is where trading exchange are happening. We see Indonesia as experiencing major social transformation with we seen a rising number of professional urban middle class, yet the economy still rely largely on the informal sector. And this informal sector employ almost... 70% of the labor forces. So it means that people actually on the street as part of the larger economic or production. It means that they're on the street delivering goods. They're on the street on the way of providing their, their service, whether they are builders or they are working in the construction site or whether they are tailors. So people are constantly on the move. They are not restricted on particular place in performing their work or profession, they're constantly on the move, delivering goods and service. Mm -hmm. So the street life is crucial uh, in sustaining the functioning of Indonesian cities. So that is the street life that has a commercial function. What about social function, the social spaces that are out on the streets as well? And what do you see has changed, if anything? 
I think we need to, to distinguish the way different social groups in Indonesia interact with the cities. If you are talking to a largely urban middle class, they, they might kind of define their life pretty much happening indoor, you know, inside an office space, at their home, in the shopping mall, um, you know, in the car, you know, and, and so on and so on. So they are socializing in a different type of space. But if you're looking at the working class, a lower income group, where they actually live in a very small house, most of the time it's a shared uh, residential uh, build, um, kind of a, uh, a shared house where they have to be outside because there's not, there's no space for them to do anything inside this very already, um, you know, crowded dwelling. Uh, so if you're talking about the working class, um, they're interacting with their community, their family, visiting their family and so on. They're constantly on the street to some extent, visiting or taking care of their elder parents, uh, walking their kids and or, or kids actually. They need to be out there because they barely have space within their own house to play or learn and so on. So so in a sense, uh, the public space remains very crucial for the working class and lower income group. Uh, the middle class is a different story in the sense that they have more space to absorb working, teaching their uh, kids, uh, caring for their family member within the confine of their house or their residential suburbs. Yeah, and you mentioned cars, they have their own transportation, they don't need to use the public transport, the buses, yes. the train stations, the trains. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so there's really a clear distinction that you're making along class lines. Can I ask if we say a little bit more about this PSBB, so the social distancing regulations that were introduced instead of a full lockdown as you describe it, so what did this actually mean and how have Indonesians interpreted the yes. regulation? It's, it's a really, really interesting situation because I don't think it's even presented as a regulation, but it is presented as a series of recommendations. And we're talk- when you're talking with Indonesian, where they, you know, they're very casual, rules are meant to be bended, rules are meant to be interpreted. If it's not even a rules, it's not even set of rules, then what do you expect? And in a sense that what they've recommended is almost similar to what we have here, that you need to minimize uh, leaving your house. When the SBB was put in place, this is also the same time when all the formal sectors were shut down, you know, offices, shopping mall, what have you, um, you need to work from home and, and so on and so on. Schools are closed, you're supposed to shift to remote learning. So in, in a sense, the recommendation is you need to minimize leaving your house if it's not essential. But, you know, as, as you know, economically, for the majority of Indonesian, for almost 70% of the population, being on the street are essential. And at the same time, there's no control of the implementation of PSBB. There are no clear measure. How is it being monitored? So there's no consequence when you're not complying to the recommendation. And we've heard anecdotal stories where the only punishment is to do 10 push-ups or 10 squat really? jumps. Yes. So people see it as, as something that is not serious. It's not consistent and there's no consequence of not listening to it, of not complying to those recommendations to minimize uh, social movement. You gave a seminar paper where you pointed to some examples where 
whilst the directive coming from government is, as you say, very loose about implementation and consequences, but locally people have had different responses, right? Yes, because I think that is when smaller scale collectivity rise. When they are interacting in urban space, let's say the street, the market, then they're just becoming part of this large, you know, urban society. But collectivity uh, regain its, I guess, definition as a response to the looseness. So we've seen so many urban neighborhoods, so many urban kampung in Jakarta, in Yogyakarta, in, in Bandung, in Semarang. They themselves create uh, their own measure to be consistent in really communicating, delivering a message of how important is social distancing, how important is to practice those additional hygiene me- measure, you know, to wash your hands frequently, to hand sanitize, and they implement that within their immediate kampung neighborhood. So they, they are very disciplined in terms of controlling who enter the kampung. The problem is they, they can't limit the movement from um, their own residents to leave the kampung because it's, it's a matter of whether you're going to eat today or not. Um, yeah. So they allow people to leave their kampung, but when they're returning to the kampung, then there's, they create their own zone. You know, you, you're supposed to wash your hand, hand sanitize, and then you can walk into the settlement. So it, it, I think you can see how resilient they are when that measure are not put in place by the formal governance of the city, then they are inventing their own measure within their own immediate residential neighbourhood. Right, and they're not starting from from zero because there are already structures within the kampung, within the neighbourhood that allow for that. Yeah, and in a sense that their collectivity already uh, comes with inbuilt social control. You know, they ha- they know who they are, they know who's the member of their community, and they're working with the scale that allow you to to operate in that extent. So this is the scale that that is often overlooked in rapidly urbanizing cities in Indonesia, such as Bandung, Jakarta, and so on. You know, we have this administrative center, RT Airway, that, that looks clear on paper, that looks clear on map, but when in, in reality, what is more efficient and effectively running is those those sense of collectivities that were already there to start with before this, you know, territorial boundaries of RT and airway were introduced. And then that becomes really clear in the situation such as what we have now. People are returning back to those collectivities that that are organic, that's already there, um, that are not uh, kind of stifled by you know, the bureaucracy of, of you know, the formal system of governance of the city. Right. Yeah, really interesting because it goes to this question about you know, the tension that we can see in Indonesia between governmentality and informality in this. And this is a really great example of that where the people have taken upon themselves to activate their own network, that informal network that you talk about, the collective, when they're really not trusting in the government to be yep. doing the right thing. Yeah. Yes. And and then this is this is uh, this should be seen as kind of a valuable um, ability of the urban community themselves. In a sense, they are self-governing, they are self-managing their realities, and this is a quality that should be recognized, that should be further harnessed. When in, at the same time we know how challenging it is to govern. 
cities in Indonesia, when you know that the population is so big and the, the movement, the daily day-to-day -day, uh, movement from the rural area to the center, commutings and so on, is in the scale that any governance system, any formal measure will be quickly outpaced and outdated. So in a sense that this is an opportunity to recognize those, those localized ability And we need to recognize, uh, you know, the way different units of communities in, in, Jakarta, in, in any cities in Indonesia already has this system. And, and, and I think we need to see how the so-called urban governance that's pretty much fixated to the formal system, they should start valuing these informal practices that have offered some form of safety net. And to some extent, this capacity has helped Indonesia from dealing with a much greater health crisis, I guess. Yeah, well, that would appear to be the case. Now, you also mentioned we're talking about, you know, the, the kampung here in a physical sense. But in your seminar paper, you talk about the emergence of something that you're calling the virtual kampung. Can you tell us about that and how that's evolved during the pandemic? Yes, it's a very fascinating development. We know that Indonesians have a large number of social uh, media users. I think about 60%, 60-70% of the population, 280 million or so population, have a social media accounts, WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, and so on. So there is this new civic space happening virtually that connect people across different class lines. What I see as kind of this virtual kampung is, in a sense, the way um, middle-class suburb in Jakarta and other major cities start to adopt this collective practice that we've identified closely with Kampung. And this collective practice is very simple. It's about how do we manage that our neighborhood, our, our street, we can still have our daily needs fulfilled without leaving our residential estate. So what they did is through WhatsApp group, they did develop a collective shopping system, you know, to buy fresh vegetable, to buy fresh meat and so on. So that only one household could leave the residential suburb and they will purchase whatever the whole block needs. So mm -hmm. this is about, you know, being very disciplined. Okay, you need to enter your, um, tell us what you need. Certain, um, this is the deadline. You have to put in what you need certain day, certain, certain time of the day. And mm -hmm. that household will be in charge in, you know, purchasing that uh, particular product. This is kind of a collective practice that I'm quite smart because here, every time I have to go to the supermarket, I'm a bit nervous, you know, in the sense that they manage that. So just imagine that you have a collective delivery system. So house A, you're in charge in purchasing, you know, um, um, pasta. House B, you are purchasing seafood, what have you. In the sense that that's, that's quite smart because you right away then reduce the needs for each household to leave their house. Yeah. Would these be neighborhoods or neighbors that were necessarily very close? Would they have been as friendly and connected? Now they become very friendly to each other and they become very connected. Because now they're united by their location, you know, that in a, you're correct in saying that in the middle class estate, you don't know who your neighbor is. 
But these days, it's very clear, and, and they're very disciplined. Like, only people who live on the same street um, could, could place an order because, you know, you don't want to overwhelm a particular household. And they, they have a measure of making sure that this order is for that particular house. So, and they, they got to know each other, and then through that system, and they start kind of promoting, I guess, uh, <laughs> or this shop. Um, this is actually my relative. Uh, they have this really good product in case you want to to sample their product. So they and, and they become a new in- connector between the shops and the customers. You know, and this is essential, very very essential when shopping malls, all the formal sectors were shut down. You know, you can't go to the supermarket. And amazingly, the informal traders are so responsive to that situation. And I, we have stall in traditional market um, now declaring we, we now accept a delivery order. And this is our mobile phone. And with that mobile phone, they are connected to the, um, the middle class WhatsApp groups and so on. And then that's, that's the virtual market space. Yeah, amazing. I mean, we can kind of see parallels to the story you're telling around the world, can't we, where we have these images of people, you know, in in lockdown New York, suddenly they're becoming so friendly across the street, out on their balconies talking to each other. It's happened elsewhere. Here in Australia, suddenly a Facebook group pops up for the street where you live, where you, you know, in a suburb where you may barely know anyone in your street. So there's some incredible kind of things that, you know, positive things that are coming out of it in that as you're describing in a collective sense. Yep. So say a little bit more, if you can, about the innovations that you see in the informal economy. You mentioned the social media usage, and also we know that Indonesia's digital economy is booming and so inventive. Have you got any examples there of where you've seen some really cool, innovative things happen? I think uh, what is really fascinating is the tukang sayur. I mean, tukang sayur is the traders uh, that walk through your neighborhood uh, selling fresh uh, vegetable fruits. And um, I remember when uh, growing up in Jakarta, they also uh, bring to your house, you know, chicken, fish, what have you, uh, fresh tofu, fresh tempeh, and so on. Now, this tukang sayur becomes such a crucial element in any housing estate uh, where the majority of household has become so accustomed of going to supermarket and the supermarket is no longer open, then the tukang sayur is the savior of the day. You get fresh produce to your doorstep. Mm -hmm. And then the tukang sayur reinvent their system. You can pre-order what you want and they will pre-package it so there's less handling of mm-hmm. the goods. You can give them the list, okay, what do you need that day, what day, that day, and they have their own communities preparing to make sure that, you know, if everything is tightly wrapped and so on, and you can pay it by transfer. So there is no wow. no need to, to pay by cash anymore. You yeah. just pay it after you receive it, and there's this high level of trust and flexibility. Okay, what is it that the customer needs, and yeah. we'll offer that. And so there is a booming in the tukang sayur, um, and to some extent that they're upgrading themselves. So in the past, we've seen very rickety timber, um, kakilima, and so on, uh, with a very simple uh, mechanism. Now that you see motorized uh, tukang sayur with refrigerated container, 
you know, to make sure that vegetable, fruit, or, you know, this fresh meat uh, will remain as fresh as they need to be. And they're, they're sort of becoming a franchise. You know, this is, this is about they're seeing the situation as an opportunity to strengthen their business, you know, and, and then they become another source of employment. So in the sense that in, in the midst of the situation we're here in Australia, people are losing their job. In Indonesia, the informal sector create work opportunities. And I think, and, and to some extent, that they now even, even start creating an app so where you where uh, residents of you know middle middle class suburb you can enter your 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 uh, re- yes <laughs> <laughs> of course there's an app I just love it so this is you know this is the informal economy really coming to the fore here yes really as you say becoming the heroes and saving the day Indonesians actually have had an incredibly sophisticated system of delivery and you know we could talk about. The Ojek and the Gojek story. Yes. And how that's evolved. I mean, I have actually a very fascinating story about how the Gojek system linked the middle class with the working class like never before. Just at the start of the COVID-19 in Indonesia, there was, you know, we, we knew exactly, oh, the Gojek will be the first who will, you know, uh, deal with the consequence of social distancing. People will just stop ordering. But, you know, that's not the case. You know, they, in fact, they become even more crucial. And then there was, I, I come across this posting in the WhatsApp group. There was a Gojek driver posting how he is really concerned that he won't be getting any delivery order. He won't be driving someone's child to their school anymore because they are so afraid of this, this virus. And the customer of this Gojek driver circulate that text. And because of that, he right away received multiple new orders. And this is, this is how empathy being uh, demonstrated in the WhatsApp group among Indonesians, which is fascinating. And again, this is kind of a, um, a moment of really crossing that class lines that are hardening in the physical environments that we've seen in Indonesia. So the virtual space for me um, is really kind of countering that, that physical realities of social division. But what about the physical public sphere itself? Are markets and those important touch points, are they open? Are they Have they been able to trade? What does it look like if you were to go to a traditional market or along the street at the moment? Um, the street traders and the traditional market remain open because this is just so crucial to the whole cycle of production, distribution of goods throughout the country. And they are adopting the new uh, measure of, you know, they've been wearing face masks since quite early, since the government, I guess, admit that coronavirus has arrived in Indonesia. In Indonesia. I mean, like people already start wearing masks before there was a formal acknowledgement of the virus already uh, around us. So they are practicing that, but at the same time, you're dealing with density of food traffic that is so high. So you can only social distance as much. So in the sense that they also, some of the markets are the hotspot of COVID-19, sadly. And in smaller cities in Java, you see really, really creative practice emerging where the local government creatively situate this informal trading, that traditional market in the formal space that 
are kind of uh, becoming less used, you know, the, the, the street are emptier kind of in the, the, in the major urban centers. So they allow traders from the traditional market to occupy the street during trading hours. And the market in Indonesia operate from very early in the morning, you know, from midnight to, let's say, six o'clock in the morning. So they can trade on the street, which is fascinating. Why not? We have streets that are not used. Mm-hmm. And in a sense that, you know, let's utilize that for economic trading. And that is happening in, in Salatiga. We have a virus outbreak. Unfortunately, there's some traders become affected. So the, the market had to be shut down for several days. But I think uh, the practice is ongoing. Yeah, so you just need to kind of, you know, know this is the risk that we are dealing with. But, you know, that, that, is, that is a very creative way of adapting the public space that are become almost... Uh, Yes, vacant. Uh, But I think it remains to be seen how this situation happened in other major cities. I think what is going on in the medium-sized cities in Indonesia are fascinating. Right. They're leading the way in terms of... They are leading the way because they're dealing with the scale that can change shape more uh, easily than, let's say, when you're dealing with cities like Jakarta or Surabaya. Who's driving that? Is it the commercial organizations, the traders' organizations? Is it the government or both together? Um, With the case of Salatiga, it was initiated by the mayor uh, himself. And you you need to see that different cities in Indonesia have this different relationship between the government and their local communities. What you see in smaller cities, you know, this this dialogue and um, exchange between the government and within the administrative uh, government and the population, you wouldn't see that interaction in other cities, in larger cities such as Jakarta. And this is also about the demography of the urban population. In Jakarta, you're dealing with professional urban middle class in one end, and you, you're dealing with, you know, quite vulnerable working class on the other end. So there is, in a sense, there's no middle. And you can see to whom the governor is speaking when he's very strict, you know. And I think uh, Anis Baswedan, through the COVID-19 pandemic, is certainly presenting himself as someone who are very disciplined, you know, with all this system put in place he's talking to a particular type of urban population yeah 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 so leadership is making a real difference from place to place as we look across indonesia yeah but you mentioned the traditional markets so what about malls the the inside spaces have how have they changed um well the mall has been reopened um, since I think uh, mid-June, the 15th or 16th of June. And um, they're implementing a series of measures, uh, social distancing, they pro- provide hand sanitizer on entrance and so on. You need to download a health declaration before you enter the shopping mall. There's a series of measures mm-hmm. put in place. And and I think they have, they have all the, the ability to, to equip themselves. You can see all the, uh, the sellers uh, or the... Um, um, shopkeeper, they're all wearing a very sophisticated PPE, almost like a PPE, you know, there's yeah. a, a plastic a mask and so mm. on. They're all wearing gloves. They're prepared. And in a sense that they are operating in the kind of space that allow social distancing to take place. And the middle class who like to be on the mall, they're like that. They will comply to the regulation because <laughs> shopping mall is, is almost like their civic space in yes. Indonesia. It's so important. Yeah. Yes. So is there confidence? So the confidence returning and, and the public is 
Yeah, I think I think they are they are quite confident. And although um, there's some concern during the Ramadan on how to control the crowd, I mean, yeah. during the Ramadan it was almost as if we are not in the mid of um, a pandemic. They are shopping like you know just like Christmas, a day before Christmas here, um, and then uh, there's no way social distancing has been practice or uh, respected but I think you see now in the shopping mall because the space you're dealing with huge space inside and then this is constantly clean and sanitized and this is such a, a big part of the formal economy sector and also provide source of employment for many of the shopkeepers so I think they are operating and they are adjusting But there will be some moments when when the crowd becomes too dense, and then it it will be it remain to be seen. Yeah, I mean, as you say, Ramadan was a test, and whilst you know, I'm sure that that had an impact on numbers of cases. Well, we've seen a case, rising case in East Java. I'm like, I'm, I'm sure epidemiologists in Indonesia will have their own analysis. But you know, East Java, you would imagine the increase, which is sort of two, three weeks after the Ramadan. Yeah, might might be related to the fact that you know people are returning to East Java, what have you, from 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 Jakarta, and the whole movement of people, and then this this religious events and so on. There's so many things that somehow still operating as if we are not in this really you know unprecedented time. And in fact, the number it's it's continue in increasing. Like the trend is still up. That is yeah. absolutely sure. Amanda, what do you think potentially be the impact on how Indonesia's urban spaces are used in the future? And one of the things I've been looking at and interested in is the amount of policing of those spaces where previously there wasn't so much presence and the presence of the military as well on the streets and at train stations. And I guess the larger question is, is this a thing that will stay? Yep. Um, I think that's a really important question. And then we certainly, from outside Indonesia or anywhere, we are questioning the future of our urban space, whether it will be even more governed, uh, you know, to what extent it can remain public, you know, how public will this space be and so on, whether people will trust those spaces, whether they want to be there. In Indonesia, at the same time, there's been conversation, this, this new normal. It's just like the old normal. It's still the same, nothing changed. So when you're looking at this exterior urban space in Indonesia, the ability to govern that space will remain very, very limited because we're dealing with the scale of population, the scale of mobilities that outpace any attempt to manage that. But we are looking at a different thing when we are referring to internalized urban space, those shopping mall, civic uh, building, museum, train station, or you know, a mosque and so on. I think there will be a rethinking of how you control users. So in a sense, uh, this, this idea of surveillance will probably uh, be a bit uh, boost up in dealing th- with those internalized urban space. Mm. The issues of privacy and surveillance have taken a backseat to the importance of public health in this case, but it's yeah. something to consider for, for how it carries forward afterwards. 
Well, thank you so much, Amanda. That's been really enlightening. How are you feeling about the prospect of travel to Indonesia is going to be maybe impossible for a while? Yeah, it is. And this is this is really, really, really worrying in the sense that my whole research area really, really rely on the ability to travel to Indonesia. And I have families. But at the same time, I I remain to be quite optimistic with the fact that Indonesian are such a resilient place and the people I'm interacting with, they right away utilize the uh, digital platform creatively. And so in, in the sense that there's always a way of trying to capture what is going on in Indonesia these days, you know, beyond what is being reported on the news, beyond what is being portrayed in the media, because everyone in Indonesia, in a sense, reporting their realities. Indeed, documenting. <laughs> documenting their realities. So when I was preparing for uh, one of uh, my recent presentation, I reached out to my colleague in several cities in Indonesia and the conversation in WhatsApp group was so, you know, lively and everyone is so eager in kind of sharing their situation. So there's, you know, the resilience is quite uh, fascinating to be observed. Yeah, indeed. We can learn a lot as well, I think, from the resilience and the creativity and adaptability that we see in our friends and colleagues in Indonesia all the time. Definitely. Definitely, <laughs> yeah. Gemma. Well, thank you, Amanda. Take care. Thank you. You too, Gemma. That was Amanda Akmadi from the Melbourne School of Design at the University of Melbourne. Talking Indonesia will return on the 13th of August, hosted by Dave McRae. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.